the thing that is called the internet, our website. So hopefully it'll pick it up. All right, if you have your Bible, I take that back. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to open to the texts that are printed for you on your announcement sheet. However, we're going to be reading a couple of different texts, and so uh, the main one we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, that'd be great. Before we read, let me just kind of say a couple of comments, uh, kind of set the stage. Last week, if you were here, we talked about one of the things that Jesus does with the commandments is he doesn't just make the commandments about the externals. Uh, The commandments are about the externals, but Jesus says it's about so much more than that, and he comes in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount and actually applies the Ten Commandments and makes it also about our heart. And tonight, we're going to see the very same thing, the very same principle when we come to commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. At first glance, we're thinking, well, I know I'm okay on this one because I'm not married. And so there's no way I can commit adultery. So I'm good. I can just Sit back, relax, and think about the skate party. (laughs) But we got to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has some very hard and deep words for us. Because he says, wait a minute, guys. Look at verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So you're thinking, hey, I'm not married, I have, there's no way I can break this one, and Jesus is saying, yes, you can. Because if you've ever looked at another person lustfully, then you are an adulterer in your heart. And so you see how that principle, what is known as the inside-outside principle, actually widens the application of the Ten Commandments. What gets even wider when we realize that the commandments also have um, another principle in which there's always two sides to a particular commandment. There's always a positive and a negative side to the commandments. Here's what I mean. Each commandment is condemning a particular vice while at the very same time encouraging a particular virtue. What do I mean by that? Last week... Let's consider, we considered murder, okay? So on the one hand, we're called not to murder people, obviously physically, but not even to murder them in our heart. What's the flip side of that? Well, we're called to love people. We're called to care for them and to cherish them and to honor them. Well, tonight we see the very same thing with the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The same thing. This commandment shows us on the one side that God has an extremely positive view of sex. That God created it. And that God has given it to human beings for our enjoyment. God wants you, in the context of marriage, to enjoy great sex. That's the positive side. But the positive side is also protected by the negative sense of the commandment. 
the rest of the Bible explains that all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is forbidden. And so it protects that positive side of the command. And I know that that is counterintuitive to think this way about the commands. And the reason why it's counterintuitive is because the commands are all stated in the negative, but number five, which is honor your father and mother. So it's counterintuitive to think of the positive side of all of the Ten Commandments. But I say that on the front end tonight because if we do not consider the positive, meaning if we don't hear tonight the Bible screaming that sex is glorious and that sex is good, then God's sexual standards for his people are going to do nothing but bring shame into our lives. And you know as well as I know that shame is a really lousy motivator. So with that in mind, let me read our two, two passages. We're going to look at the 1 Corinthians 6 chapter or uh, passage within the sermon. So I'm going to read Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 and then Matthew chapter 5. This is God's word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew chapter 5, if you look with me on your announcement sheet, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her, in her, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we come again uh, before you on Wednesday night, before uh, we look at your word more closely and we pray, and oftentimes it seems like it's just the next thing to do. But Lord, it's not, because we desperately need you to show up. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come, would you convict and challenge and change, but also show us uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, through the seventh commandment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight, more than ever, as we approach the seventh commandment, we need to remember that one of the main purposes of the commandments is not to keep us from having all the fun. One of the main purposes of the commandment is not just simply a religious code of conduct. One of the main purposes of the commandment, as we have seen this semester, is that they show us how life works best. In other words, the commandments show us what it means to be fully human. We've talked about it this semester that our humanity and the facets of our humanity are held together in a certain way that when we honor our design, life goes well for us. Life, we are blessed. But when we dishonor our design, 
and some of you know this, when you dishonor your design, then your life is full of destruction. Your life is full of dysfunction and insecurity and alienation and loneliness. What I want to attempt to do in the short time that we have, because we've got to go skate, is to show you that there is an ocean of blessing and an ocean full of wisdom behind this tiny little commandment, commandment number seven. And I hope that as we look into it, uh, some of you might begin to understand yourself for the very first time. So much so that maybe through this commandment, you will have your sanity restored as a result. Tonight, we're going to look at commandment number seven. We're going to look at three things to help us understand it better and to help us understand why God even has a commandment about sex at all in the Ten Commandments. I think it'll become very clear as we look at these three points. We're going to look at the purpose of sexuality, the power of sexuality, and then we'll close with the healing of sexuality. Number one, the purpose of sexuality. In my opinion, I think it's very easy to establish in the Bible that the Bible is very pro-sex in the context of marriage. I think that's easy to do. What's not so easy, in my opinion, is to explain why God has given us sex. But I think it's important that we understand the purpose of it or why God has given it to us because if we don't, then we'll never understand why God has such a high view of it in the context of marriage. There's actually more than this, but let me give you just the kind of right off the bat three purposes of sex that the Bible lays out. Number one, very obvious, Genesis chapter one, procreation. God has given us sex to procreate. It says very clearly, be fruitful and multiply in those early chapters of Genesis. Number two, God has given it as a gift to us for recreation. It's for our enjoyment. Look at the Song of Songs very clearly that sex is to be enjoyed. Thirdly, and I think more profoundly, and the one that I'm going to elaborate on tonight, is sex is given for communication. What do I mean by that? Sexual activity, when we engage in it with our spouse, is saying something to our spouse. What is it saying? It says this, sex is a way of saying to the other person that we are still in the relationship. The Bible says that sex is to take place between a man and a woman in the context of a permanent and exclusive relationship, which the Bible calls marriage. And so God invented sex to be the way in which one person says to another, I belong to you exclusively and permanently and completely. I belong to you. Listen, in the course of marriage, in any given week, friends, there are a thousand things that threaten to undo you. Children, and undo the relationship. Children, jobs, schedules, selfishness, and the list goes on and on and on. But every so often, some of you are saying, I hope this is a lot, but every so often, God tells married people to come together in the marriage bed, in the marriage bed, 
and to come together in such a way that you communicate this. I'm still here. I know what happened last week. And I know the things I said to you were pretty ugly. But I want you to know that I'm not leaving. I want you to know that I will never leave. I'm still here. And so it changes it, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden the purpose of sex in the Bible is not so I can get my pleasure fulfilled. Is sex pleasurable? Yes. But it's not about me. It's all of a sudden the Bible says it's about them and the person that I'm married to. And listen, I wish we had time to work this out and to talk a lot about the applications here, but let me make one quick point of application. This view of sexuality pushes against everything that the world says about sex and the ideas of sex being consumerism. In other words, sex being all about you getting your needs fulfilled. One of the main problems with sexuality in our culture, among other things, is that it's purely individualistic and purely me-centered. And whenever we view sexuality and whenever we look at another person and use them for our own sexual pleasure and to satisfy our own desires, the Bible says that we have committed adultery that we are adulterers. And at the heart of adultery in every sexual sin is lust. What is lust? Lust is using another person for your own pleasure. Lust renders another person negotiable. Lust renders another person disposable. It reminds me, actually, and hopefully you'll see how this is, comes together, but it reminds me of the, an episode of Friends, of the sitcom. Uh, many of you have probably seen that, and if you haven't seen it, uh, you've probably seen reruns or probably own the DVD of the series. But there's just one particular episode that I love, and it's when uh, Monica and Chandler are fixing to get married, and Monica is after the perfect wedding dress. And she can't find the perfect wedding dress because the perfect wedding dress, she realizes, is very, very expensive. And so she starts going to these discount stores to look for a wedding dress. And her, Monica, Phoebe, and Rachel decide to camp out and to stand outside of this discount store waiting for it to open. And they have this well-thought-out plan. They even have whistles <laughs> That when they go into the store, if one of them finds this wedding dress, the perfect wedding dress, then they will blow their whistle and all, you know, the rest of the girls would come over and check it out. Well, they're in the store and Monica finds the perfect wedding dress. And she reaches out. She puts her hand on the wedding dress and she's ready to take it off the rack. And you know what happens if you've seen it. Someone is on the other side. They reach for it, and their hand's on it as well. And so there begins this tug of war, and it gets ugly because Monica basically wrestles this woman to the ground in order to get this wedding dress. And here's what happens. Monica becomes a caricature of a beautiful and happy bride in that moment. Friends, that's exactly what lust does to us. It twists us. 
and it distorts us as human beings and it makes us a caricature of who we were intended to be as human beings because it reduces us to one thing, sex. And lust turns sex into taking. And the Bible says that sex is about giving. It's about loving. And it's about caring. The purpose of sex. Secondly, we see the power of sexuality. Why does God give us the seventh commandment? And to me, this is, this is one of the clearest reasons why God gives us the second commandment, or the seventh commandment. It's not because, as we initially might think, because sex is bad. The reason why God gives us the seventh commandment is because sex is very, very powerful. And we see that power come out by the fact that when it is enacted, it works as magic, whether or not the person realizes it or not. What do I mean by that? What kind of magic? What does that look like? Here's the magic. The magic that is enacted according to the Bible is that two people actually become one. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you look that on your outline, among other things, here's what Paul is saying, is that there's a mystical union that takes place when two people have sex, regardless of whether or not it's a one-night stand, regardless of whether or not it's a prostitute, regardless of whether or not you even care about that person at all, Paul says something happens in that moment. Two people become one. Look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Let me read it for us. Here Paul is forbidding Christians to have sex with prostitutes. But listen to his reasoning. Listen to his reasoning. Do you not know that a person who is united in intimacy with a prostitute is one with her body? For as it is said, the two shall become one flesh. Keep away from the sexual immorality, for you do not belong to yourselves. You were bought with a price. Show forth God's glory then in how you live your bodily life. What does that mean? Paul says that sex with a prostitute is wrong because every sexual act is a uniting act. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that sex is more than just the physical act of sex. That sex is actually holistic. That it's a spiritual thing. That it's an emotional thing and that it's a physical thing. It's a bonding thing. You are becoming one person with them. You are becoming one flesh and perhaps the best illustration is the illustration of superglue. Think about superglue. I personally hate to work with superglue and to deal with superglue. And here's why. Because in a matter of seconds, it bonds. And the tenacity in which it bonds with, to me, is totally defies reason. I mean, if you dealt with it, you know that if you get superglue on your finger... The skin is coming off before the glue comes off. 
What's the point? Well, the point is that you don't have to understand how superglue works in order for it to work. It just does. Friends, sex makes promises. And those promises are tied together to what we're talking about, to the purpose of sex and to the power of sex so that you are bonded to another person. And like superglue, you don't really have to understand that it does it, it just does. And that's why it is so powerful. But if you think about the power of sex, it really does explain a lot to us, doesn't it? I mean, because when we think about it, we start to see that sex outside of marriage is always a lie. I mean, it has to be. And it cannot be anything else because sex is making promises that while you're engaged in it, says this feels good and that this is lasting and that this is bonding and that I am secure here. It says things like, I'm not going to leave you. I am bound to you. I am always going to be here. But if you're dating, you know that that's a lie. It's not true. Why? Because dating, there's no covenant. There's no bond. There's nothing keeping you together. And some of you know that. Meaning by the very nature of the relationship, the other person is free to date anyone they wish at any moment. By the nature of the dating relationship, again, you have not taken vows to one another and stood before God and before witnesses. And so by the very nature is that person can start dating someone else tomorrow. And so it makes the sexual relationship in a dating relationship a complete lie. Well, what else? Well, maybe... It helps us to understand why that when we broke up with our boyfriend or girlfriend, we were infuriated by that breakup and it totally messed us up. And it took weeks and months and maybe longer for us to get over. And we don't really understand why. Well, maybe it was because you had sexual contact within that relationship, significant sexual contact. And so you made promises to them. And so you were writing checks with your body that the nature of the relationship could not cash. You see, and for this reason, sexual contact outside of marriage is only going to leave you very insecure. I mean, think about it. Isn't that the main reason why after a one-night stand with someone at the bar or sleeping over or making out that deep down you feel like something's not quite right and you feel very empty inside. You feel empty and you try to cover it up by talking to yourself and saying things like, well, I'm just, I'm just kind of a jealous person. That's who I am. And so I, that's normal. That's right. That's, that's okay. Or maybe you cover it up by saying things like, I just need to get over it. It's really not that big a deal. But here's the thing. You won't. Because it leaves an indelible scar on your soul. 
Friends, it's the power of sexuality at work. It's why I heard a story recently. One of my, uh, a friend who he's has a great marriage and he saw an old lover from college, his girlfriend, they're not together now, he's married to someone else. He saw her in the grocery store and his first instinct was to turn and to walk away and to run and not make eye contact with her or to see her. Why? She's in a great marriage. He's in a great marriage. What's the big deal? It was the power of sexuality at work. That's why God gives us the seventh commandment. It's not because he's trying to keep us from having all the fun. It's completely the opposite. God wants to save your soul. It's because he loves you so much. And he's saying, this is how life works best. This is what it means to be human. The purpose of sexuality. The power of sexuality. Thirdly and finally, the healing of sexuality. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at that passage. The way Jesus has applied this commandment pretty much cuts the legs out of every single one of us in this room, friends, me being the chief. Because when we start applying this commandment, like Jesus has applied the commandment, there's not a one of us that hasn't broken this commandment in thought, word, and deed. There's not a one of us that's not sexually broken in some way. And so then the question becomes, so what do I do? How can I change and start moving away from my sexual sin and sexual brokenness? In Genesis chapter 12, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, Moses tells us that our first parents were introduced, Adam and Eve, and when they were introduced, they were naked and unashamed, the Bible says. Then Genesis chapter 3 hits, and they rebel against God, and sin enters the world. And if you remember, their eyes were opened for the very first time, and they realized that they were naked. And so what does that mean? They ran, and they hid, and they covered up. And from that point on in the Bible, guess what? Nakedness and shame have always been synonymous. And in the passage that we have looked at, the short sampling of passages that we looked at, friends, in a room this size, I know that there is a lot of shame around sexual sin. And the question is, is there hope for the sexual sinner? Like me and like you. And the Bible's answer is an emphatic yes, which is very good news for us. But before we start talking about specifics on what to do, let me warn you that friends, and you know this, some of you know this, we all know this to some degree, that sex goes all the way to the bottom of who we are. We're sexual beings. That's how God created us. And so the reason why I say that is because there's no easy answers. There's no quick fixes. Recovering from this stuff and sexual sin often takes lots of time and lots of grit and tenacity. But the Bible's not without practical wisdom. 
Bible is actually very practical in how we can start moving forward and experiencing healing. Matthew chapter 5, Tim Keller says that Jesus gives us the way that we can begin sexual healing in our lives. Look at Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus says, cut off your hands and pluck out your eye. Let's think about the eye just for a second. The eye is how we view things. And so right off the bat, we hear this, that if we're going to deal with our lust, willpower will not work. Meaning, willpower, power, we can't just say, I can't do this, I've I got to stop doing this. We can't wag our finger at our heart and say, stop, I won't ever do that again. Because it's not enough. We have to start changing the way we see, remember the eye, the way we see our sexual sin and view our lust. Here's what I mean. You have to start seeing it differently. So that in the middle of your sexual sin, you say, wait a minute. This is worship. I'm actually looking for God right now. You say, wait a minute, I'm actually seeking acceptance right now. I'm looking for beauty. I'm looking for closure. And then you look at it and you say, this will never deliver for me. This will never make good on its promises. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to start seeing the delusional nature of sexual sin and sin in general. We have to change our perspective. I talk a lot about internet pornography. And when someone comes and says, I'm struggling with internet pornography and masturbation, here's one of the first things I say. The next time you're tempted, wait 15 minutes and ask yourself this question. What is it that you really want? What is it that you're really looking for? You see, that gets right at the heart of, it helps us to see the delusional nature of what is taking place. It helps you to see that you're looking for something more beautiful and greater. You're actually looking for Jesus. So we have to start seeing it in a new way. That's the eye. But not only do we need to pluck out our eye, Jesus says that we need to cut off our hands. What does that mean? Well, he means that we need to be concerned about where we are. In other words, our behavior is very, very important and we do need to worry about it. And so you need to remove yourself from the temptation. Or you need to remove the temptation from uh, from in front of you. Very practically, just a couple of things we could say. What does that mean? Well, it might mean for you that you just can't handle it, having the computer in your bedroom, and so you've got to move it to a public place so that you're free from that temptation. It might mean that you get an internet accountability program like Covenant Eyes on your computer. It might mean that you can't go back to your apartment or to your house after your dates. 
It might mean that your phone, maybe you settle uh, for a phone that's not a smartphone so that you don't have internet access, or it might mean that you lock your phone down so that you can't get on the internet and you can't download apps. I don't know what it means for you. It's different for everyone. But what would it mean to remove the temptation from before you and to actually look at your behavior? Here's the point. If you only work on your behavior and you don't change the way that you are viewing things, then you're going to fail, period. On the flip side, if you don't change the way that you're viewing things, in your own, or I'm sorry, if you're only looking at things correctly, but you're not changing your behavior, then you're naive and you're trusting your heart way too much. That's why Jesus says it's both. Notice he doesn't just say pluck out your eye and cut off your hands. Why does he say that? Well, look at what he says about hell. Here's the point he's saying. If you do not do that, the wildfire of your sexual sin will spread to the rest of your life. But we can't stop there, can we? I mean, there's more to be said in order to draw this all together. Because if we stop there, then this just becomes two techniques that we are to use. And there's got to be more that brings it together. And it is brought together with this question. So what do I do with my shame? What do I do with my brokenness? Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Very, very interesting. In the crucifixion accounts, in those two Gospels, right before the, those, uh, the crucifixion in those Gospels, it says that Jesus was flogged. That Jesus was beaten. And you know what other detail they add, those writers, which blew me away when I saw this? They tell us that Jesus was naked. Why? I mean, why I add that detail to the story? Do we really need to know that? I mean, we, we get it. Isn't it bad enough that he had to be beaten and die on a cross? Why are you going to bring up this memory of him laying there with no clothes on? But what if it's important? What if that in that moment, as Jesus is being, being beaten to a pulp, to an inch of his life, really. What if he's bearing your nakedness and suffering your shame? The detail becomes important very quickly then, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Some of you are so filled with embarrassment and so filled with shame over your sexual sin that you cannot even stand it. And some of you are crying out, Jason, I need some serious help. Here it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it says that in Jesus... He brings relief from your shame. 
He brings relief from the shame, from the sinful things that you've done, and relief from all of the shame that you've just heaped upon yourself for no good reason. And he says, come to me, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so here's the question. Will you? Will I? Will we come to Jesus tonight in the midst of our shame? Will we come to him and receive the peace that only he can give and the cleansing that only he will provide? I hope we will. Let's pray.